Hey, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio. Hi, this is Laura. And this is Martha. And this is Katie. Today, we're going to be exploring parenting and thinking a little bit about how people put pressure on each other or society puts pressure on each other about motherhood, even about pregnancy. Have you thought about how ingrained in our society is the idea of a perfect childbirth? Today, we're talking with Ashley Mitchell, and she has an amazing Instagram account where she talks about this issue. And she also addresses the issues facing women after birth. Listen in. Today, we're exploring parenting and thinking a little bit about motherhood. Welcome, Ashley Mitchell, who is a writer, educator, maternal health, thought-provoking person. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for being here. You caught our attention at Boston Red Cloaks through your beautifully written posts about parenting, motherhood, the pandemic, maternal health. I mean, you've covered a lot of topics. So we're just very excited that you're here and spending time with us. Thank you for sharing on social media. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's It's been a fun platform to meet people like like all of you. And I likewise have been inspired by your content. So I'm, I'm excited to be here. Ashley writes on Instagram under the name Post Parenthood. And we would love to start by just finding out how did you decide to share your experiences in this format? As you've sort of alluded to, I have a background in maternal and child health, and I dreamed up having two unmedicated um, vaginal births, and my both of my stories went awry, and I ended up having two unplanned C-sections, and um, I'm also trained as a birth doula, and so the convergence of all these things, of my expectations and my knowledge and training... And then my actual experience um, just get, left me with a lot of tension and left me with a lot of questions and need to do like emotional, mental healing in addition to physical healing following birth. And especially being in circles that talk a lot about the empowering experience that birth is for a lot of people. Um, I found myself having a really hard time figuring out where I fit because I didn't feel like my birth stories were all that empowering and I didn't feel like um, things met my expectations. And so um, I kind of started sharing that story with close friends and just being honest about where I was at and what my experience was like and found that some of the people I was talking to really did resonate with that. And, and that encouraged me to share a little bit more broadly to just challenge that narrative that an empowering birth has to happen one way or that parenthood has to come about in a certain way or there's a best way for it to come about and so I think it has been part of my own healing journey and part of a way that I can invite others into that conversation mm-hmm. and it's sort of grown beyond my birth story I think as as I've interacted with different people on the platform and outside of the platform and as I've just grown as a parent. Ashley, I'd love to hear about how your pre-pregnancy experience as a maternal health professional? How did that influence how you thought or your experiences? I came into birth and like pregnancy and birth in particular with a lot of expectations about it being like physiologically normal and like women's bodies are just made to do this, right? Like we're created to bring life and I'm using an, a sarcastic tone on purpose because I think now <laughs> I've, I have more come to terms with and um, have had therapy and providers and all sorts of people to help me come to terms with the fact that it is a privilege and honor that 
I, I have a body that can grow a human. And it's also a privilege and a wonderful thing that I live in a place where I have access to healthcare that can help me birth that, that human. And so I think my past training gave me a lot of a lot of good language and a lot of good practices and, and expectation, but also had some gaps around what what can be part of the whole story and what can be good, I guess, in people's experiences. I think even now it's really been shaping who I am as a parent. And I think some of what Jesse has alluded to of what's coming out in, in my Instagram is as a parent, I really think about um, maternal and child health. I think about reproductive health and I think about, I am parenting the next generation that is going to continue or create the policies that you all are working so hard for and people in my state of Minnesota are working so hard for. And so as much energy as I am putting into shaping those policies or reforming education or having dialogue with people on Instagram about what it means to create health access for women and people with a uterus. I also want to put energy into my parenting so that the next generation actually practices consent mm -hmm. and actually um, learns about people across the gender spectrum and what it, what they need and um, want with their bodies and their health. And so I'm doing that in very real ways with my now with three and one year olds. And I think I was just thinking this morning about like, what are ways that this is actually happening in my life? And my now three-year-old, when he was two and a half, I have a very vivid memory of trying to get him to take a nap and he's laying in his bed and he keeps getting up and rolling around and sitting up and like, look, I just need you to lay down, take some deep breaths. I'm gonna sing you a song. And he kind of snapped around and <laughs> looked at me and said, mom, I get to do what I want with my body. You get to do what you want with your body. <laughs> and and I, in that moment, I was, yeah, I was like stuck, right? So I was like, yep, that's right. Like I've been modeling this and you're getting it. And I love that. And you win. Like then don't lay down. Like <laughs> tell us how old is that child? He's now three. Okay. So he was two and a half when he told me that comment. And he said several comments like that. That's a phrase we use in our house a lot. Um, and so I just like, I think for me, that is what's rewarding in parenting and how I sort of connect maternal and child health and reproductive justice with parenting is sort of this like, yes, I want to inform policy. And also these next little people are the next population. Yeah, um, so, true. so yeah, so it's fun and really hard. <laughs> I just wondered how that informs how you talk to people in your, you know, professional life, work life, kind of, whether it's through posting or, or whatever other work you do with people that are maybe um, haven't gone through what you've gone through yet. I think it comes out in a lot of unintentional ways because I'm sort of just fluidly moving between all of these places with a similar lens or try to anyway. One way I think about it is I, I teach a class called Maternal and Child Health Global Health Issues. And in that class, we talk about obstetric fistula and we talk about 
just different maternal child health issues that can feel really removed from students that I'm teaching here in Minnesota because they're mostly impacting impoverished settings or they can sort of feel far away. But I think my own experience with gaps in healthcare and in postpartum care and in that like coaching around birth that didn't match my experience, I can bring that up uh, to, to just call attention to that, to, to name that the primary narrative that we hear and even that we teach is not everyone's experience and that can be okay. So I can second what you said about the some of the women's bodies are not ready to be to be mothers or for pregnancy. I for one was one of those, even though I have I had six pregnancies and I am alive by the grace of God because <sighs> nobody told me all the things that could happen. Mm-hmm. Every the, it was like a fairy tale. You get married, you get pregnant, you have the babies, and they live happily ever after. But they never tell you that you can have a miscarriage, that you can have an abortion, that your body is not ready, even though you are a healthy woman. And thank, thankfully, I lived in a country where and I was in a position where I had everything to have uh, the pregnancies to a full, some of them to a full term. So, um, and I know you were in the ideal position to be pregnant and you had the knowledge to take care of yourself and to get ready. So what were the things that you did that helped you with all these uh, difficulties and all these issues that come? Before my first pregnancy or kind of between or? With all the pregnancies, there were, if you wanna go into detail with each one of them or just do a generalization of what you had to do or what you learned besides the knowledge you had of being a doula. Yeah, so I think I had, a ton of privilege, both because I waited to get pregnant until my late 20s. I was in a married relationship that felt really safe to me. Um, I have access to adequate nutrition, all those things. And then I also, because of my training and theoretical knowledge, chose to do things like weekly chiropractic care. And um, I drank the tea and I sat on the, the Uh, ball instead of a chair and I did I continued to exercise through both of my pregnancies um, which I now actually question if that was a good thing I with both of my pregnancies I ran a half marathon which some people like pat me on the back for that and now I'm like I don't know if that was the best for my body but I knew that I needed to be active right I had this I had the knowledge that I needed to take care of myself in an even better way than I did before pregnancy and So I feel lucky that I had that knowledge. Um, I do think in some ways that like that, all those, all the ways that I was trying to control my own story by going to acupuncture and drinking tea and doing stretches and being seen by a midwife, um, kept that expectation in my head that birth would go a certain way. And that if it didn't, it was like something that I did wrong. Um, And I really struggled with that after my first birth, which I now describe as like mentally, emotionally traumatic, right? Like it was 
picturesque C-section in terms of uh, uh, the physical component of it, but I had a really hard time coming to terms with that experience because my expectations weren't there the first time. Um, the second time, I think I, I went into it with just as much tenacity and preparation and, and almost this like, I'm going to reclaim my story, right? And I had read and heard a lot of stories about vaginal birth after C-section or VBACs and found a lot of encouragement in that. And while in the back of my mind, I knew there was a chance that I would have another C-section, it felt really small to me. And so through that labor experience, I again had, for both of my labors, I had multi-day labors and that experience, my second birth, I actually, I got to push for a couple hours and I like had all these moments of hope, like, oh, I'm going to get this experience that I think I want, that I think is going to make me feel empowered. Um, and then ended up having a surgical birth that honestly almost killed me. And so the physical recovery of that second one was really hard and and I had a, a two-year-old at home. And so I, I like had to also deal with the emotional weight of like, I can't pick up my two-year-olds, right? And I have, now I have memories of both of us just crying because I am like physically healing and trying to describe to him why I can't pick him up. And he's too, like, he's a tiny narcissist and he wants to be picked up and why can't I just do it? Um, and so, and obviously we made it through that and our relationship's okay and, and I'm okay, but I think it, it made for a really hard second recovery. And so even though I was the best prepared I could have been, I still had an experience that was hard and not my fault and benefited from the healthcare access that I have here. And the only reason I think I'm alive and, and my second child is alive is because of that. And so now I've been trying to do the head and heart work of like coming to terms with that. And, and part of that for me is sharing that story because I think there are other people who resonate with that and who don't match that, that the narrative that's shown as like the ideal birth and the ideal way into parenthood. So would you say that you need, uh, that people need to be educated uh, more on that, to have broader expectations about childbirth, uh, about pregnancy, because, um, and as I see it in this country, everybody wants a natural childbirth. And I had one and I don't see the beauty in it. <laughs> the, rest of the other ones were programmed C-sections, but my, in kind of in my defense is that my natural childbirth resulted in my son becoming uh or having cerebral, cerebral palsy. So with the other ones, I the first thing I told the doctor is, I'm pregnant, I don't want a natural childbirth, I want a C-section, I want everything. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, in, in it's going back to the privilege of having those things and having the, the medical treatment and all that. But would you say that we need to uh, reprogram people and reprogram the knowledge to let people know that things could go wrong or things need, there are some other things that need to be known and need to be made. Yeah, and I think 
we need more stories like yours <laughs> that are louder um, just to bring diversity to expectations because the reality is diverse. And um, yeah, I think we do do ourselves a discredit and a disservice by saying there's a best way to be a mom or a parent or to have a birth because that's just not true. <laughs> and it's really hurtful and damaging, right? And I think if we can instead focus on giving people or creating a space where people actually have agency and power to make choices that feel right for them and their body, sometimes that might mean a C-section. Sometimes that might mean an abortion. Sometimes that might mean a natural vaginal birth if their body can do that. And I think really opening up all of those choices to everyone is what will bring about more healing. It's so interesting. I think part of your your way of storytelling that's so engaging is that you share a lot of details that really help a person, whether they've had your experience or not, understand what you're explaining has happened in your life, but it invites the reader to reflect on her own experiences in a little bit more detail. It, you do, you start out your your first post is about making space and I think you've done a beautiful job making space clearly for yourself to process some of these things, but also allowing space for someone who's reading and hasn't even met you yet to think about it. So you don't have posts that are like in your face, do this, don't do that. You are really asking questions and sharing. What are, what are some ways you've um, found that you find support either in friends or in people who comment on the blog? What's that like when you're sharing and people share back? I think that that response has been one of the biggest reasons I've decided to keep sharing. I've found that like holding space for myself and others and having that vulnerable space, even with former strangers <laughs> has created opportunity for conversations like this. I think it's these conversations that can lead to ideas and mindset changing, which can lead to policy changing, which can just sort of keep spiraling, right? It's, it's a different type of advocacy or um, activism, I guess. And so I'm not like a formal activist or anything like that, but I think I have found a way to create a little corner in, in my space in the world to just let there be diversity of stories and um, protect people from the mainstream expectations, particularly when they're hurtful. So you've posted a lot about maternal health and racial disparities. Are there any ways that we can help? I think you are helping. <laughs> Just from following, um, following your platform, being able to be a voice that challenges those disparities, brings attention to those disparities, I think is a really important first step. One of the, one of the quotes I was thinking about coming into this talk with you all today was um, part of Amanda Gorman's The Hill We Climb, the recent poem that has taken over the world, rightfully so. Um, but one of the quotes I keep seeing popping up everywhere is the, um, if we merge mercy with might and might with right, then love becomes our legacy. And a lot of times it stops there, but the rest of the sentence that she included was, and change becomes our children's birthright. And I think it's so important to keep that part in there because when we are loving, which sometimes can be 
through advocacy and through sharing a different part of the story and through listening and learning, honestly, we can create that change. And I think that change is what is needed. And the awareness that people are seeing of disparities and inequities in our system, the more voices that we can have at the table that are calling attention to that, the better. Like putting, putting that onus back on the system to say like, we need to dismantle some things and rebuild and reform some things so that we can undo what we are currently creating. And so I think it's really different for everyone where they are. For some people, it really might just be leveraging their position as a parent to raise the next generation to see people as equal and to um, try to have equitable relationships with others. And if, and if you do have a platform like the Boston Red Cloaks or like others, it's leveraging that platform um, to raise awareness and to seek reparation and just challenge that status quo. One of your posts, you said, um, you're never, once you have a child, you're never fully off. You're no longer just you. <laughs> It was, I was like, put that on a mug, please. <laughs> Some of us have kids who are a lot older than you. And it's, and I even look at my mom when I need something and call her. And then you also shared something um, about with your students. And I wondered if you would share that here about um, how people are managing in COVID and some of the unusual mm-hmm. challenges. Cause you sure lifted my day that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it lifted my, my spirits too. So yeah, so I just have really young kids, but I teach undergraduate and graduate students and have undergraduate and graduate teaching assistants and was talking with a group of teaching assistants last term about kind of how they were coping. And we, we keep seeing the statistics about mental health and emotional health during COVID and isolation. And, um, and why don't just keep checking in with people, right? And one of, the, one of the comments that stood out to me from my students was that every single one of my TAs talked about one of their parents being someone that they are relying on and, mm. and pulling strength from and is sort of a source for them of love and of light during a time that's otherwise hard and weird and unknown. And I think that gave me hope because I like to be frank, I am exhausted, right? Like COVID has depleted all of our resources as parents. And I now have a toddler who gets no social time outside of his one-year-old brother, which is terrifying to me. (laughs) Um, And so, but I think like that, that foresight and for for parents now who can kind of look back right like the work that we're doing every single day and just showing up and being present for our kids has that lasting impact and builds a resilience and a capacity for them to endure through really hard and unexpected times like a global pandemic because no one told me there was going to be a global pandemic when i wanted, <laughs> when i decided i wanted to be a parent like i didn't sign up for this <laughs> How do people find you and your writing and learn more about what's happening in Minnesota with reproductive justice? That could be a long answer. (laughs) Um, Find me in my writing. I currently just do writing on Instagram at the handle Post Parenthood and primarily share about those intersections for me about parenting and about maternal and child health and reproductive justice and disparities and things that I'm seeing. Learning about what's happening in Minnesota. Uh, One of my colleagues who's really inspiring to me is Dr. Rachel Hardiman. And she has 
gotten a bigger voice and platform over the last year, which I'm really grateful for. And so I would encourage people to Google her, her work, her name. Um, she's doing a lot of good work calling attention to disparities in Minnesota. Um, Dr. Jamie Slater AC is also another, another voice that is local. One thing that I, as I've become an adult, have realized is I live in a blue state and, um, and a lot of people, I think, think like, oh, there's, there's Planned Parenthood there and people have access to reproductive choices and things they need. Um, and just, I can't remember if it was last week or this week now because all the days are a blur, <laughs> but um, we just had legislation like proposed in our state for um, denial of all abortion access. And to me, like it's 2021 and we're still having these like sweeping bills proposed. And I obviously have strong hopes that it will just sort of die off right away. But I think the fact that it's being brought forth by people of power and decision makers says a lot about the fact that there's still a lot of tension at on the ground about about choice and about reproductive justice. We really appreciate your spending time with us this morning and getting some insight into your writing. Also some nice resources from Minnesota. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to staying connected. Thank you. It was great to meet you. Thank you. Thank you.